The following sermon is by Josh Tancordo, the teaching pastor at Redeeming Grace Church in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Redeeming Grace is a gospel-centered church that values rich biblical teaching and authentic Christian community. Learn more by visiting our website at redeeminggracepittsburgh.com. Well, this morning we finally come to the end of our journey through the book of Isaiah. We've been going passage by passage through Isaiah for about a year now, actually. And I think it's been a really good journey. Uh, just to review some of the key themes that we've seen in Isaiah. We've seen, first of all, that God is holy. He's in a class all his own. A category that's entirely different than any other being. So that there's no one like him. We saw that especially in chapter 6. Then we also saw that God is sovereign over history. He's the one who determines the fate not only of individuals, but even of entire nations. He's on his throne, ruling over this world in absolute supremacy. We saw that especially in chapters 8, 14, and 45. In addition, we saw that sin separates us from God. Because we, as human beings, have gone our own way, our sins have alienated us from this holy and righteous God. We saw that especially in chapters 59 and 64. However, God, in his grace, has provided a way for us to be saved from our sin and, and rescued. He sent his servant, as a capital S, servant to come to this earth and act as our substitute and atone for our sins through his death on the cross. He endured God the Father's judgment so that we wouldn't ever have to face it. We saw that especially in chapter 53. And we saw that God invites all people everywhere from every nation and every culture to come to him for rescue. His grace isn't just for one race or one class or one group, but for everyone everywhere. Amen. That's emphasized especially in chapters 11, 45, and 60. And then finally, we saw that God will one day swallow up death forever and bring about a new heavens and a new earth. And that was described especially in chapters 25, and the previous chapters, chapter 65. So this is the message that Isaiah has brought to us. He's taught us all the essential elements of the gospel. And that's why it probably wouldn't be inaccurate to call Isaiah the gospel according to Isaiah. It might not be a bad name for the book. It might not be a gospel narrative in quite the sense that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the New Testament are gospel narratives, but there's certainly plenty of gospel in Isaiah. And now here in chapter 66, we're building off of what was taught in the previous chapter about the new heavens and the new earth. And I'm really glad that Isaiah is spending another chapter talking about this because these truths about what's coming in the future have tremendous significance for the present. As I'm sure you've noticed, this present world 
is tragically broken, right? I mean, every day, just, just take your pick of what kind of evidence you want to cite for that. Every day, people are, even millions of people around the globe are suffering from the lack of food and, and drinkable water and adequate medical care. Like every day, countless people are victims of abuse, for example. Every day, people die from cancer and various other diseases. Every day, people suffer from the, con the, uh, the effects of conflicts and violence and war. So this world has gone just horribly wrong in so many ways. And yet when we consider the new creation that God will one day bring about, and even now is already in the process of bringing about, it becomes clear that what we have in front of us right now isn't the end of the story. God isn't just letting all of this happen without intervening. No, he is intervening in a progressive manner that will one day culminate in the new creation. And so what we have right now is kind of like what you see when you pause a video of someone. Uh, like if those of you who are watching online were to pause this video, of me right now, uh, there's a good chance that you would catch me with some kind of weird expression on my face, right? I mean, it might not look that weird when it's in a video. Maybe it does. I don't know. But hopefully it doesn't look too weird when it's in a video. But if you were to isolate this still frame of a bit video, it, it just has a way of catching expressions on people's faces that are usually quite unusual. And that's similar to the way it is with this present world. Things look really messed up to us right now. But if you unpause the video, so to speak, and you view things in light of the eternal paradise of the new creation, then it becomes clear that God knows what he's doing. He's got a plan, and it's a, a wonderful plan and a glorious plan. And the distinguishing feature of the new creation that's brought out in this particular chapter of Isaiah is that it will be a world of perfect worship. Now, there were a lot of features of the new creation described in the previous chapter that we looked at last week. But in this chapter, one feature in particular rises to the top. Perfect worship. So that's the main idea that we see here in Isaiah 66. God will establish a world of perfect worship worship. And by the way, just to clarify, the word worship refers to a lot more than merely singing, okay? It actually comes from the old, like way old English word, worth-ship, which kind of gives you an idea of what the, the, the word means. Uh, worship is all about attributing worth to God in various ways. And that's what's going to be happening in the new creation, perfect worship. Now, unfortunately, in this present world, our worship is all too imperfect. Sometimes it's so imperfect that it's hard to even refer to it as worship at all. And that's primarily what we see in these first few verses of the chapter. Look first at verses 1 and 2. 
Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. So the basic error God's rebuking his people for here is trying to worship him without a proper regard for who he is. True worship is built on a right view of God. But unfortunately, we, both the Israelites and just humanity today even, we often don't have that right view of God. We tend, quite honestly, to have a, a rather high estimation of ourselves and a correspondingly low estimation of God. Uh, we view him as less than who he is many times and, and have a way of reducing him down to, let's say, more manageable proportions. Someone that we're a little bit more comfortable with, right? And apparently the Israelites were doing this with the way they conceived of God's relation to the temple. They apparently, as we see in the text, thought that God could somehow be confined to the temple or that he even needed the temple in some way. But God sets them straight in these verses by reminding them that heaven is his throne and the earth is his footstool. So he's not limited to their puny temple. He then states in verse two, all these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be. So for the Israelites to think that they're somehow doing God a favor by building this temple for him, it would be kind of like a young child thinking that they've done their parents a favor by using their parents' money to buy a gift for their parents, right? And that's you know, kind of cute that they think that, and, but we understand that's not really the way things work. Like, nobody who uses my own money to buy a gift for me is actually doing me a favor. And it's the same way. That, that's the sense here in which... Um, the Israelites are relating to God, right? The Israelites haven't given anything to God that wasn't already his anyway or done anything for God that he didn't enable them to do. And so there's no sense whatsoever in which God's indebted to them or owes them a favor. I mean, even though they might try to manipulate him in that way, it sounds like, God refuses to be manipulated. And so for us today, so let me encourage you in your worship, make sure that you don't make this mistake of viewing God as less than who he is or reducing him down to more manageable proportions. Brothers and sisters, God is holy. He's incomprehensibly Holy. If you remember back to Isaiah 6, he's holy, holy, holy. And that's the truth I believe a lot of Christians today need to hear. You know, we've by and large done a great job of emphasizing the fact that God's personal, 
You know, we talk about having a personal relationship with Jesus and, and things like that, and that's all very good. But don't let the fact that God's personal cause you to lose sight of the fact that he's also holy. He's utterly beyond us and, and just above what we can comprehend. I appreciate what God says in Psalm 50, 21. He's actually rebuking the wicked here. And he says, you thought that I was one like yourself. Is that not an error that we also can all too easily fall into? You thought I was one like yourself. So remember that you were created in God's image. Never reverse that. <laughs> Never start conceiving of a God in your mind who, in fact, you have created in your own image. I mean, that is an offense of the first degree to the true God of the Bible. I mean, you probably compare it to someone spreading lies about you, right? I'm sure that most of us in this room have probably had people who are going around to other folks and saying things about us that weren't true. And I would imagine that that probably made you feel pretty upset, right? Perhaps even furious. And so I think that gives some insight into how God feels when his holiness is diminished in our minds and in our supposed worship. I appreciate this quote from a theologian named A.W. Tozer. He says, Among the sins to which the human heart is prone, hardly any other is more hateful to God than idolatry. For idolatry is at bottom a libel on his character. The idolatrous heart assumes that God is other than he is, in itself a monstrous sin, and substitutes for the true God one made after its own likeness. Let us beware lest we in our pride accept the erroneous notion that idolatry consists only in kneeling before visible objects of adoration and that civilized peoples are therefore free from it. The essence of idolatry, get this, the essence of idolatry is the entertainment of thoughts about God that are unworthy of him. The entertainment of thoughts about God that are unworthy of him. Oh, that our worship would be free from such thoughts and that it would arise, arise instead out of thoughts about God that are biblical and true and right. And if we conceive of God as he really is, the effect that it has on us is to humble us. And that leads us to the second part of verse two in our main passage. God says, but this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Does your view of God leave you in that condition? Does it leave you humble and contrite in spirit and trembling at his word? If it doesn't, it's probably not a biblical view. So that's one way in which our worship is often deficient, trying to worship God without an adequate view of who he is. Then moving on to verses three and four, we see another way in which worship is often deficient. Trying to worship God 
while at the same time living in disobedience to his commandments. Look what God says. He who slaughters an ox is like he who kills a man. He who sacrifices a lamb like one who breaks a dog's neck. He who presents a grain offering like one who offers pig's blood. He who makes a memorial offering of frankincense like one who blesses an idol. These have chosen their own ways and their soul delights and their abominations. I also will choose harsh treatment for them and bring their fears upon them because when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not listen, but they did what was evil in my eyes and chose that in which I did not delight. So in verse three, God says that for those who are living in disobedience to him, performing a religious ritual, even one that was commanded in the law of Moses, is as bad as outright sin. They might as well have been sinning instead of sacrificing because that's how displeasing their hypocritical sacrifices are to God. He tells them straight up, that he who slaughters an ox, a sacrifice commanded in the Old Testament, is like one who kills a man. Obviously a sin. He who sacrifices a lamb, another good thing, like one who breaks a dog's neck, which was associated with pagan worship. He who presents a grain offering, a good thing, like one who offers pig's blood, something highly offensive to God. He who makes a memorial offering of frankincense, like one who blesses an idol. So we see here that even acts of worship and sacrifice that would, under normal circumstances, be very legitimate, are actually repulsive to God. They're just as repulsive to him as outright sin and idolatry. And the reason they're so displeasing to God is because of the way people are living who are offering them. It says that these have chosen their own ways and their soul delights in their abominations. That God then continues in verse four, I also will choose harsh treatment for them and bring their fears upon them because when I called, no one answered. And when I spoke, they did not listen, but they did what was evil in my eyes and chose that in which I did not delight. So the problem here is hypocritical worship. Hypocritical worship is not only unacceptable to God, it's actually highly offensive to him. And so for us today, and we can see how critical it is for our worship on Sundays to be matched by our conduct on Mondays. Just to put it very simply, God cares how you live. We might sometimes become pretty good at turning a blind eye to certain areas of sin in our life. But God never turns a blind eye to sin. And he's the one whose opinion matters. And notice the phrase in verse four, where God says, they did what was evil in my eyes. God's view of things is the only one that really matters although it may currently be popular in our postmodern society to try to invent our own morality and just determine for ourselves what right and wrong are going to be, 
that's not actually the way things work. I mean, we can pretend that's the way things work if we want to. But anyone who does that is going to be in for a very rude awakening in the future. I mean, God says here that he's going to bring their fears upon them. So the very thing that they feared and perhaps were seeking to escape through their disobedience will in the end be the very things that God brings upon them in judgment. So ask yourself, in light of these verses, where are you choosing, as it says, your own ways instead of God's ways? Where has God been? as it says, speaking to you, but you did not listen. So these first four verses in Isaiah 66 illustrate that the world in which we currently live is characterized by worship that's all too imperfect. Sometimes it's downright false and hypocritical. Yet as we continue reading in the chapter, we see that God's establishing a world of perfect worship. Look at verses 10 and 11. Rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad for her, all you who love her. Rejoice with her in joy, all you who mourn over her, that you may nurse and be satisfied from her consoling breast, that you may drink deeply with delight from her glorious abundance. So understand what's going on here, all right? God's linking the future with the present. In the present, as you may remember from previous messages, the city of Jerusalem was a heap of ruins. The Babylonian army had invaded the city and had burned it to the ground. And so currently, as verse 10 says, God's people were mourning over the city. Yet God tells them, that instead of mourning, they should actually rejoice as they look toward the future. In the future, Jerusalem's going to be for them the source of eternal satisfaction. Just as an infant, it says, is satisfied when nursing at its mother's breast. And if you're familiar with previous chapters in Isaiah, especially chapter 65 that we looked at last week, then you know that Jerusalem depicts not just an earthly city in ancient Israel, but also the heavenly city that God will bring about one day. We see this same Jerusalem terminology applied to the new creation, to our eternal home in Revelation 21, which describes the new creation as new Jerusalem. And the all-important link that helps us understand why the new creation is described this way is that the earthly city of Jerusalem in the Old Testament was the place where God's temple was located. And God's temple was the place where he was present in a unique way. And where the people of Israel were supposed to worship him and offer sacrifices to him. And so Jerusalem is essentially a place where God is both worshipped and present in a unique way. And that's the link here to worship, right? That's why I'm saying the main idea that God will establish a world that's aptly described as a world of perfect worship. 
It'll be the ultimate place of worship. Jerusalem, as it was always meant to be. Hebrews 8.5 says that the earthly Jerusalem and the earthly temple and the earthly sacrifices were just shadows and copies of the heavenly things. Those are the words it uses. Shadows and copies. For example, think about the shadow of a tree. The shadow might be sort of similar to the tree and reflect some of the tree's features, but it's not really that much to speak of when compared with the tree itself. The tree itself is way more impressive to look at than the shadow. And yet, the shadow still vaguely resembles the tree and points to the tree's existence. And that's the relationship between the earthly Jerusalem and its temple and the heavenly Jerusalem and its temple. The earthly is just a dim shadow of what's to come. And so that means in the new Jerusalem, we'll experience worship like never before. Perfect worship here. And we see here in these verses, 10 and 11 of our main passage, that we can rejoice even in the present. Even with all the brokenness of our present existence, much like the Israelites were experiencing a lot of brokenness, we can rejoice in that as we anticipate the way in which we'll be eternally satisfied in God's presence in that new Jerusalem. Then moving forward, God's description of this Jerusalem of the future continues in verses 12 through 14. For thus says the Lord, behold, I will extend peace to her like a river and the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream. And you shall nurse, you shall be carried upon her hip and bounced upon her knees. As one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. You shall be comforted in Jerusalem. You shall see and your heart shall rejoice. Your bones shall flourish like the grass and the hand of the Lord shall be known to his servants and he shall show his indignation against his enemies. So just like the water of a river never ends, but just keeps coming and coming and coming. That's the kind of peace God's people will experience. God says in verse 12 that it'll be peace like a river. He then says that this new Jerusalem will be a place of glorious comfort and nourishment and blessing to all of its inhabitants. And we then get a further glimpse of the worship of the new creation in verses 18 through 20. For I know their works and their thoughts and the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and see my glory. And I will set a sign among them, and from them I will send survivors to the nations, to Tarshish, Pol, and Lud, who draw the bow, to Tubal and Javan, to the coastlands far away, that have not heard my fame or seen my glory, and they shall declare my glory among the nations." And they shall bring all your brothers from all the nations as an offering to the Lord on horses and in chariots and in litters and on mules and on dromedaries to my holy mountain Jerusalem, says the Lord, 
just as the Israelites bring their grain offering in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord. So we see in these verses that part of what will make this worship so wonderful is that it'll involve a great diversity of people. People from all nations and tongues, God says, will come together and see his glory. And in fact, God's people will actually go out to the nations, it says, and bring them as an offering to God so that they also can worship him. So part of our worship will actually consist of getting more worshipers. Uh, this is basically Isaiah's version of the Great Commission. We then read in verses 22 and 23, a great summary statement that really sums up what this whole chapter has been about. God says, for as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. From new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. So the new heavens and new earth will be a place, God says, where all flesh shall come together to worship before me. That's what it's all about. Worship at God's feet for all eternity. That's what we were made to do. And that's what we will do, those of us who are Christians, forever and ever in the presence of God. So understand, guys, that worship isn't peripheral to our purpose. It's central. A.W. Tozer, whom I quoted earlier, says that worship is our whole reason for existence. He says it's why we are born and why we are born again. Yet, unfortunately, it seems like we often forget that. That's why Tozer elsewhere refers to worship as the missing jewel of American evangelicalism. Think about that analogy. The missing jewel of American evangelicalism. It's like we have the band of the ring and we have the setting of the ring, but not the jewel. The jewel is missing. I can tell you right now, if my wife looked down at her finger and saw on her engagement ring that I bought for her that the main diamond was missing, there'd be no small amount of freaking out from the both of us probably. And that's, yeah, that's what... Tozer says, and I believe he has a point here, that the jewel of worship is missing from our ring. You know, most evangelical churches have carefully designed structures and wonderful systems and you know, amazing mission statements and all these carefully manicured programs. But do we really go throughout our week and through our daily lives as worshipers of God. I mean, there's no question. We've got the machinery down. 
But do we really engage in rich, meaningful, daily worship of the one true God, delighting in God above all others? That's what Tozer wondered, and I'm personally inclined to ask that same question. And so hopefully this picture of the new creation here in Isaiah 66 as a world of perfect worship is a helpful reminder for us not just to anticipate this worship in the future, but also even now to actively engage in worship as the central focus, the central purpose, the central delight of our lives. Yet, in case you didn't notice, the chapter's not over. There's actually one more verse in Isaiah 66 that we haven't covered. The last verse of the chapter and of the entire book of Isaiah is verse 24. Describing the inhabitants of the new creation, it says, And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. For their worms shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an aberrance to all flesh. And that's how the book ends. Kind of an abrupt ending, don't you think? And listen, it's not accidental. I mean, Isaiah didn't run out of ink in his pen. He could have ended with verses 22 and 23 and their wonderful description of the the incredible blessings that we'll get to experience for all of eternity in the new creation. I mean, personally, that would seem like a, uh, I would think a great closing note for the book. Yet Isaiah doesn't do that. No, he wants to leave a different note ringing in our ears. One of the gravest and most sobering and most graphic warnings in the entire Bible about the horrors experienced for all of eternity by those who reject God. Their worms shall not die, and their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an aberrance to all flesh. All earthly worms eventually die. All earthly fires are eventually quenched. But not this worm and not this fire. Now this suffering right here, this is forever. It's eternal. And I'll just say that that's not something that we need to be embarrassed about saying. I mean, Jesus himself, I mean, think about the most loving person in the world, right? It's probably Jesus, I would imagine. Jesus himself wasn't embarrassed about it when he quoted this very verse in Mark 9, 48. People need to know what awaits them if they reject God. But of course, the good news of the gospel is that it doesn't have to be that way because Jesus already suffered this unthinkable torment on the cross 
so that we wouldn't ever have to face it. I mean, that's what makes the good news so good. Like Jesus, essentially, he suffered hell on the cross so that we wouldn't have to suffer hell in hell. He took our punishment, the punishment for our sins, on himself. Then three days later, of course, he resurrected from the dead so that you and I can enjoy eternal life in the new heavens and new earth. So Jesus' resurrection was a foretaste and a, a glimpse forward in time to the glorious existence that we can have with him in the new creation. Yet in order to experience this eternal blessedness, God requires that we repent of our sin, that we just turn away from our sinful way of living, and that we look to Jesus alone as the only one who can rescue us. So I'll just go ahead and ask you this morning. Have you done that? Do you know where you'll spend eternity? Because understand that every single one of us, even at this very moment, is already choosing an eternal destiny. We are. We are choosing an eternal destiny right now. So which destiny are you choosing? Hopefully you can see here in Isaiah 66 that the stakes couldn't be high. Like this is eternity that we're talking about here, that the stakes could not be high.